The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Barbara Schmidt. She is author of The Practice, Simple Tools for Managing Stress, Finding Inner Peace, and Uncovering Happiness. Uh, Barbara is the founder of the community outreach program Peaceful Mind, Peaceful World, and is a presenter on the TEDx Talk, Is This Seat Taken? The Power of Sitting with Yourself. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Barb. Oh, thank you, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Well, we're going to talk about your book, obviously, but also in the context of September's National Recovery Month, So, and we're talking about recovering from all different kinds of addictions, whether it's drugs, alcohol, eating disorders, uh, and how to do it and the commitment to be able to do that, which is something you've done given uh, your history of alcoholism in your family and their kind of inability to, I guess, get good treatment, and then you became bulimic. So um, I imagine that's all part of um, the context I guess for writing the practice, and uh, before we had the, before we got on the air, you and I were saying, well, simple tools for managing stress and finding inner peace and uncovering happiness, but it's not so simple, <laughs> is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not so simple. But once you get into into the mindset that there's, I, I can live the greatest life that I want to live. There is more out there than all the external things. I just need to come into myself. You know, many spiritual teachers and masters say, come home. So once you get it that, okay, I can do this and I just need to come inside and need to learn how to find a practice and practice it, that's why I titled it Simple because really the tools that I talk about are simple, but it's not simple to start. We, uh, we have this agonizing mind that's always saying, oh, I'll do it tomorrow, just like a diet, right? Anything yeah. we try to do or anything that we want to do, trips, anything, the mind is always saying, start tomorrow, start tomorrow. So this is really the same thing. So the hard part is getting started. And then it really is pretty, these are not difficult things to do. Uh, it's just, just having you step on the path and do it. And my recovery and my bulimia and my alcoholic family is what got me started on the path 30 years yeah. ago. Yeah, so let's, uh, that's a, we, let's start with that. Talk about starting because it's been 31 years, you say, 31 years of recovery. 31 years this year. Yeah, okay. So let's, I mean, let's backtrack in your own life because I think that's interesting and you obviously set the example for us and, and for your book. So... What, you know, your family, you grew up in a family that suffered from addiction, right? We're talking about alcoholism. Yes, You're, both of my parents were alcoholics. So you can imagine when I wake up in the morning, you never knew yeah. quite what you were going to wake up to. And I was the oldest of five, five kids. And so I learned how to navigate this idea of never knowing what was going to happen next. So always being on guard or always kind of looking over my shoulder. But there was a little spark in me always. I thought, I, I'm not going to end up this way. 
I, I can, I can make it. I can achieve. So I'd watch all those shows. You know, this was back in the sixties and the seventies, especially when I was in high school, you know, that girl and Marlo Thomas and that girl, just watching all of that stuff and the thrill of being in New York. And I thought, I'm going to make it someday. This is not going to define who I am. I used to say that all the time. I'm, I'm not going to be this way. So I started working at McDonald's as a sophomore in high school. And if you are an addict or you're a, you're a, a child of an alcoholic or an addict, you, you, you definitely have this type A personality. I have found most of the people that I talk to and work with. And you also have this perfectionist quality. So when I started working for them, I wanted to be the best. And I thought, this is my shot to make it. So I did. I was 14 years old and I excelled. I was always given a raise and I was constantly given more opportunities and more jobs. And so by the time I graduated from high school, I became a manager of a store on my own. I'm 17 years old. And then ultimately back then, McDonald's had this program that if if they liked you and you were doing a great job, they had a a business facilities lease program that you could own your own store and then have three years to earn the money to get a loan at the bank and and make it your own. So before the age of 21. I have to sit back a minute, Barb, because it almost sounds like here you are, 14 years old, you get a job at McDonald's, but like you're raising yourself. And usually what I hear from people, there's like, at least one person, and you were the oldest of all of your siblings, so who was there for you? I mean, somebody, didn't someone have, or was, there was no one there for you in any way who, like, perhaps gave you any kind of encouragement? And What I'd have to say, and it's, it, I love that you've asked me this question, because when I was writing the book, um, I, I went on a retreat before I would finish the book, and they were talking about your spiritual teachers along the way, your path, and it really hit me. I had a grand, my grandfather, my dad's dad, we used to go there every summer, and because my home was so chaotic and so crazy, I used to want to stay with him, so I would spend the summer with my grandfather every year as a child. He was my greatest teacher, and I talk about him a little bit in the book. He was so calm, so methodical, so willing to teach and he, he would walk to church every day, and I would walk with him. So he had this, this presence about him that, was, that I mattered. He made me feel like I mattered, and I used to work in the garden with him and work in the garage. He was a plumber. So he was my teacher. I didn't know it until I started writing this book. I mean, I guess I knew it, but I didn't really know it until I started writing this book. And I had a few teachers along the way, and in high school especially. I had one teacher that... I was flunking an algebra class, and she, she came up to me, and she said, Barbara, you're better than this. You are so smart. You're better than this. And I got straight A's the rest of the, the rest of the, because I, first of all, didn't want to disappoint being a child of an alcoholic, but also I said, I am better than this. I can be better than this. It's really but amazing. If you are an addict and you are a product of this, it's still really difficult. Yeah, but, I, you know, teachers are so important. I'm listening, you know, you're just, I mean, that, statement, like you said, you're better than this, yeah. Yeah. that's all you had to hear, and then it, it, I guess it resonated with you, I am better than this, you know, and yeah. somebody recognizes it. Um, all right, so now you have your teachers, your grandfather, and here you are, McDonald's, be getting, you work there, and then you had the opportunity to, what, own a franchise? And I also, I also want to say my the managers yeah. at the McDonald's, as a 14-year-old, yeah. Every time I, you know, the people that own um, service industry, they, they really recognize, I believe they recognize good employees. So every time I did something right or good, which was all the time, I was constantly getting praise. Oh my gosh, I was winning awards. I was, they would highlight me all the time as their prized employee. So the more that they did that, the more I loved it and was fed by that and kept on doing it. 
Um, but then you can see that whole scenario of how that can happen. I am a product of an alcoholic home, so it was never enough. I had to keep getting better and keep getting better, and ultimately it got the better of me. And uh, one of my managers walked in. Uh, this was about 19, uh, about 1977, 1978, and he said, "Barb, you were." They gave me a huge award. You were doing such an amazing job, and I can kind of tell you must really love what you're doing because you put on some weight since you've been here. And that's all I needed to hear. I thought, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with me. I, I don't want to be fat. I don't want to. And so I, I developed an eating disorder as a result of that comment. I talk about it in my TED Talk. As a result of that comment, you know, when you're only, your only feedback and, and your, your worth is dependent on the external world. I was so dependent on what people thought of me for everything, for my, for my ability to keep going, for my self-worth. Uh, just that one sentence oh, we can tell that you like what you're doing. You've put on weight since you've been here. Launched me into a seven-year battle with bulimia. The power of words, you know, to a vulnerable person is what you're, you know, obviously that's what you're talking about. But so from that day on, then that was it. You became, you know, well, fed. You said you were fed by all the praises they gave you at McDonald's. So the word feeding, I guess, you have to be constantly fed. And then how did you, how did your bulimia manifests itself because it manifests itself in different ways I think it does and, and I think when you think about this this is 1978 77, 78, 79 this is way before we even heard the word bulimia I mean I didn't even know but I, I just knew that I had to find a way to lose weight and I thought okay I'll just I'll just get rid of my food every time I eat so it manifests every single time I ate it was a very serious because of the personality that I had, I didn't do anything halfway. I did everything all the way. So every single time I ate, I got rid of my food. So six years of that took a toll on my body, my mind, my spirit. Uh, I was still working hard and still I ended up owning six McDonald's restaurants um, ultimately along the way, but I was dying inside. I was so unhappy and so miserable. And I woke up one morning in 1984. Karen Carpenter, one of my most favorite singers back in the day. She had died of anorexia and bulimia the year before in 1983. And the newspaper in South Florida, I was living there, had done an article on her uh, celebrating the anniversary, one-year anniversary of her death. And then the other side of the newspaper was a treatment center in Naples, Florida. I read it. I started crying. The voice inside of me said, you have to go get help. You're going to die. And I checked myself into treatment the next day, a six-week treatment center in Naples, Florida. And that was, and then, and you've, I guess that was the beginning and you never, yeah, never looked went back. back. Uh, yeah, was you, an amazing... yeah. Were you in any kind of a significant relationship with anybody else or were you just alone and just like, you know, oh, you were bulimic at the same time, you know, successful in business, but uh, any one kind little of detail. No, I was married. Yeah. yeah. I married one of the supervisors uh, at the McDonald's restaurant. So we got married in 1977. So no, I had a husband and we were thriving professionally together and really he was also a McDonald's employee. I was in a McDonald's employee when we met and got married and so we were building this career and building this life together and he came home from work that day and and I hadn't gone to work and I never missed a day of work. That was what fed me was my work and and he said, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm checking myself into treatment. Could you drive me over there? And you know, he didn't really, that no one really understood what purging and bulimia, it, 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 it was not understood understandable by people. And I really praise this treatment center. It was a cutting edge treatment center over there in Naples. It had alcohol and drugs, but it had a very prominent section for food addiction, for bulimia, for anorexia, uh, based on the 12 steps. And it saved my life. 
your husband had no idea he didn't see you vomiting mm. or he didn't or he didn't want to see it no. or uh, yeah I think a little of both, Catherine. Uh, it's a very secretive disease, so I, I was very, sh- it's very shaming. I was embarrassed. I, it was, um, the more you do it, the worse you feel about yourself. So it's a real, you know, the, in the spiritual path, they call the, the life the, the razor's edge. It's really a balance that we're always trying to walk. And the same with my bulimia. I wanted to do it and was addicted to doing it because I didn't want to get fat and it, it, it helped me feel in control. Bulimia is all about control. I was controlling my weight, but on the other side of it, I was so embarrassed, so shameful, so much spiraling down into this feeling that I was so worthless and didn't matter. And I think he didn't want to see it. I don't think he understood it, what it was, but I also think he, he, um, he didn't know because I was, I was so secretive about it. And do you think Nobody because you when so I came out of the, When I came out after treatment, all my friends and... Colleagues at McDonald's, um, when you come out of tre- when I came out of treatment and really felt so phenomenal about myself and, and didn't feel shameful and would talk to people about it, they were shocked. Nobody had a clue. How did you do this without us knowing about it? Think of all the. I'm, I'm thinking about all the energy you had to expend. You talk about like you know the havoc it raises on your body, but you're like doing double, kind of leading a double life, or you are yeah. leading a double life because you're hiding and you are so successful at the same time. So I mean, obviously that takes a lot of energy too. So. Um, oh, Catherine, that's know. so beautifully said. That you are so right on with that, and that's what I want to tell anybody that's suffering from an addiction. First, that you can do it, and you're so worthy and so amazing. But second. The energy that you gain when you get a hold of what's happening for you and you really start to work through your traumas and the things that are causing underneath this addiction, you're right. The energy that I have today, even my daughter today, everyone so she say to me, Mom, I don't think I've ever met anyone with more energy than you. Between now being so fully grounded in the life that I'm living, my meditation practice, my, my really ability to stay present in the moment, it, it's amazing how much energy we, we have and how much we're spending on the things that don't really matter and that we don't want to be doing anyway. Yeah. I guess we have to feel... You're, you're so right about that, and I think it all comes down to also choice. Sometimes we don't realize that we do have the choice, that those choices are out there. And, uh, I mean, to me, that's kind of the first step. We, we can... We do have choices. We have choices that are positive ones. We don't have to be engaged in the kind of activity, well, what you were doing when you were bulimic. What about children, though? You have children. Where did they come in? Did you have kids at the time, or was that after you went into recovery? It was after. I went into treatment in 1984, and then I had my daughter in 1985, a year later. Pretty amazing, isn't it? I never thought that I would have kids because I didn't think that I was capable or worthy. And pretty amazing when I opened up and released the bulimia and got on a path of, you know, of health and well-being and love and, and really, really starting to uncover that I love myself and that I am a worthwhile human being. Uh, I got pregnant in 1985 and she was born at the end of the year. So it's, I think that I, that whole premise that, you know, life does love you, that you do have everything that you need inside of you and that everything in the, in the universe and everything in your life is all unfolding in perfect order. It's hard to really believe that, especially when you are suffering like I was, even though I was incredibly externally successful, I was internally dying. But once you start to taste it, you can never turn your back on it again. And it's so amazing how life does open up with such, so many blessings and yeah. such beauty. 
So it feeds uh, on so itself, yes. <laughs> to use the word. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and I just want to go back because, you know, people listening who have an addiction problem obviously are going to be interested in your story. I mean, you said you were the oldest of five siblings. Mm-hmm. And yes. what happened to you, you know, I just, can you give us kind of like a context, like what about your others, what happened to them? I mean, similar kinds of... Um, yeah. Three of them are alcoholics. Uh-huh. And one w- did have a drinking problem, and he found religion. Religion became his recovery, the youngest, my youngest brother. But the other three have a drinking problem. And they're, it's interesting with, with addiction. I, was, I, I, I guess when I look back after these 31 years, I was blessed that my life, even though I had all this external goodness and greatness going on, I felt like my life was unmanageable. And AA talks about that. When your life has become unmanageable, even though I had all of this, I felt like my life was unmanageable. My three siblings, um, they're leading very productive, successful lives. So at some point, you can do all of this external good stuff going on, but when you can't get to a place of understanding that that the alcoholism or the addiction or the bulimia or anorexia or whatever it is is causing you to um, live a life that's not manageable, live a life that's so far beyond what you're capable of. Uh, so I, I look at my bulimia really as a sacred disease. It woke me up. And a, and a lot of people don't necessarily hear the call, but I'm on a mission and a passion for people to hear the call and know that you're not at the mercy. You said it beautifully. You know, we, we think we don't have a choice. And I didn't think that I had a choice. I just felt if I keep going and running as fast as I can, it's not ever going to catch up with me. And we don't want to be, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years down the road saying, oh, my gosh, where did my life go? This is not the life that I would have chosen because we do have a choice. And we realize that once we let go of and go through treatment or go through therapy or go through whatever it is to uncover those feelings and those traumas or those um, hidden uh, little tentacles, I call them, that are deep within you that need to come up and get released and really step in then to the life that you really want to live because we do have a choice. We're not at the mercy of the external world. But, Barb, what about the people who are listening to you and say, well, I'm listening to you, but obviously you're smart, you know, you're well-educated, you're a businesswoman, so you have a lot of skills. And so does that make it easier for you to get into recovery, to like, you know, get it, to do what you did? Because, you know, the person who's listening, well, I'm just an average person, you know, I'm not that bright, I don't have that many skills, I'm not that talented. I mean, you had, some of those you had, you didn't recognize they were there. I mean, you didn't feel it, but they were there. Well, you know, I'm the average Joe, I can't, how can I do this? And I would say we all have the same ability. I, don't, I, I teach autistic adults right now with, with my practice. I am in awe and in such honor of these incredible adults. They have such amazing ability inside of them. So it doesn't matter that what their external uh, uh, situations are. And so I say that to everyone. We all have this ability, but we can't run from ourselves. We can't disconnect from ourselves. I was so disconnected from me. I, I actually, and I say this so much in my TED Talk, I actually thought if I could just disconnect from me enough and get so connected externally that it wouldn't really matter. I didn't matter. It just mattered everything that I did. So I say to every person that I talk to about going into recovery, or even if you're not an addict, even if you're feeling like you don't love yourself or you're not worthy or you're not good enough or you're not smart enough, I thought all those things. I, I, I grew up in a very poor home. We didn't, we didn't have money. Uh, so I, I had a lot... I had, 
serious trauma that I'm going to write about in my next book. So I, I have all the same elements that anybody sitting here listening said, I'm not as good or I'm not as smart. I felt the exact same way. We are the same. When you start connecting with you, though, and connecting with that source within, love, beauty, compassion, your greatness, you have to stop running from yourself and just little by little by little start connecting and then seek the help that you might need. Because I think when you sit with yourself, you start to recognize, I need help. That morning when I started crying, I can't live this way anymore, was the, was the release of, I need help. And I also you think that you don't... saying, I need help, it's like there's a divine uh, message or divine intervention that will come in and say, okay, this is what you need to do. I open the newspaper and there's a treatment center ad. I think, I think Barb, you know, one of the things is I think that if you don't have to, and I, I, maybe we should emphasize this, I mean, you don't have to, as you say, you don't have to be, be an addict. It doesn't have to be such extreme behavior, alcoholism, uh, you know, uh, eating disorder. I mean, you can, before you get to that point, you can, and I think therapy is, for, well, I'm a social worker, so I think therapy, yeah. counseling, help is, is always a good thing, even when you feel like you're stuck. You don't have to be over yeah. the edge. You don't have to be on the razor's edge, like you said. But get it before it happens, you know, hopefully. And, um, and I love I think, that, Catherine. I, yeah. I am such a proponent of therapy. I mean, I was in therapy for decades in my life, and I yeah. still go in and out of therapy from time to time. I love speaking with someone else who has some wisdom. That's what this whole practice, that's what our lives are about. How do we connect with other people at the same level that have some wisdom. And I love what you just said. It's, I, I think just don't run from yourself and, and not be ashamed. I think shame is such a, I'm amazed that it's 2015 and people are still embarrassed to talk about a drinking problem or being bulimic. I speak at high schools all the time and I have a lineup of girls wanting to talk to me. You know, I'm so sorry. I'm so, I'm so afraid of telling people that I think I am bulimic too because I'm so embarrassed. And I'm thinking, this is 2015. Um, this is Why do you think that is? Of everybody. Why do you uh, think so that shame. is? Why are we in 2015? These girls are still afraid to talk about, you know, the, they, their eating disorder to their teachers, to their parents, to whomever. Yeah. I mean, there's still a stigma. Is that why? I think so, but I also think it's more society. So we've become such a an external society with the magazines and and social media, and so the perfect person is that girl that has that perfect body. So you look at the magazine covers, you look at the movies with the air. I just everything is this is what you have to look like in order to have it, to make it, to be somebody. So I think more than ever, one little girl, um, actually she's a middle schooler, was talking with me, and she said. I will never look like this girl on the magazine, and so I feel like my life is over. And I looked at her and I said, what? I mean, I had to have her repeat it to me again yeah. and it, because it was so deep. And so she truly felt that because she couldn't look like that, she wasn't tall enough, she wasn't thin enough, she had dark hair instead of blonde hair, she didn't feel like her life mattered. She didn't feel like she even had a, why, why try? I can't look like this, so something's wrong with me. So it's sad, and I think it's emphasized even more this um, this feeling that we don't matter, we don't fit in, or we're not good enough. Uh, so I think that's, that has also contributed to the fact that it is shameful, that there's something the matter with me. 
So everybody has to read your book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Well, and then find your practice and practice it, as you and I were talking about in the beginning, Catherine, that it's all about finding what, finding your own heart, finding your own soul, connecting within. And then, as you said, I, I, the fact that you brought up choice, it, that is such a big deal. We are free and we have a choice. Uh, so we just need to connect within with ourselves and really go out and live that life that we want to live. So how do you impl- implement this? So let's say in the beginning we talk about having children, okay, so that they don't, you know, this girl, this teenager that you spoke to um, who felt like she was a nobody because she couldn't live up to the, you know, she wasn't beautiful, she wasn't blonde. Um, how, as as parents, I mean, you know, we can sort of incorporate your practice uh, into raising our own children so that, you know, because prevention is a good thing too. We don't want to wait necessarily yeah. till after the fact. I feel strongly that what, what causes people to compare ourselves with each other is that we're disconnected from ourselves. So if you can get connected to you within, if you can just find times and, and periods and moments of silence with you, little by little, that's what happened for me. I left treatment. And I continued on a meditation practice, a mindfulness practice, a a yoga practice, a a walking practice. I would go on silent retreats because I knew that the minute I get disconnected from me, then I'm dependent on the external world for everything, for my value, for my worth, for my care about myself. So it's that, and I work with these girls a lot, boys too, but these girls in particular with these um, image issues that you can't get disconnected from yourself because you're giving away your own power. You're giving away your own presence. And so when you get stay connected to you, you can have that thought, oh, I'm never going to look that pretty. But when you come back in, you say to yourself, I don't look like that, but I love how I look because I love me. And you start that replacing those negative thoughts with powerful, positive, true thoughts. So I'm teaching them that the thoughts that you have in your mind about being separate and not being good enough are not real. It's not true. You know, one thing and is that you process, you're working with gir- you're working with girls, and I, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about: girls seem to be, and it seems more are particularly more vulnerable to all of this, to defining themselves from the external world. I don't think it seems to me that little boys and even men aren't quite as vulnerable in the same way that we are. That we define ourselves by how other people, how we think other people see us. That's your next well, book. Yeah, look at I love it. Look at the movie Jerry Maguire. What's the one line out of there that everyone repeats? You complete me. Mm-hmm. And it just gives me goosebumps to say it out loud again. No one completes us. And so girls in particular and women and I felt this way. And I think that's my biggest message is I am just like you. I may sound uh like I have it all together and I do, but I didn't. I didn't. I was exactly like you are. Everyone listening to me that has any kind of serious image issue or or self-loathing or lack of self-worth. So we watch a movie. I thought what I needed to complete me was money, was power, was a good job, was a man, was, I could fill in the blank, a a nice house, uh, nice clothes, nice shoes, whatever it is. and it never is enough because you can never have enough because you're trying to fill that hole inside of you uh, that, that you already are complete. So I think that's what my practice, this power of sitting with yourself, that you already are complete. You already are whole. So now sit down with yourself, tap into that, 
and recognize that no one can complete you. You're trying to do something that is not possible and that can never work. And I learned that for the past 31 years, that I already am complete. And so when I meet someone, I'm, I'm married now, I, I my second marriage, we're, we're a partnership. He doesn't complete me and I don't complete him, but we are wonderful together as two complete human beings. Yeah, and I think that's obviously, I mean, that's very well said. I think and I also want to recommend, I mean, a lot of what we've been talking about today, because we only have about a minute left, okay. um, I want to recommend that people listen to your TEDx talk because um, I think that was very enlightening and uh, um, it was it, it's, it's something that's kind of a, it complements your book, I guess. Um, yeah. So, Barbara, so tell us, okay, the book, where can we get it? Uh, what website can we go to um, to get more information about you and about the book? Yes, it, Barnes & Noble and Amazon, all the bookstores have it. And you can go to my website, barbschmidt.com, or the nonprofit that I started, PeacefulMindPeacefulLife.org. It is my passion and great mission to help all beings really recognize your own greatness, just like the social work that you do. I honor all people out there that are trying to raise the consciousness of our of our world and of our planet. And I, I want people to really feel their own sense of love and self-respect and worth. It's such a passion of mine. You can imagine I didn't have it, yep. and now I do, so I want everybody to have it. Fantastic. So it's been great talking to you today like on the org. show. It has been like a, a real treat. And um, we're going to have to say goodbye. Uh, it's oh, we've Catherine, been talking I love to you. Barb Schmidt, wonderful. and she's the author of The Practice, Simple Tools for Managing Stress, Finding Inner Peace, and Uncovering Happiness. Uh, we are going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Have you heard your 15 minutes of fame? How about four times that every single week? 
It's the fame game. Listen as Maddie Rose, who is up and coming in the world of fame, brings you fame from all walks of life. You'll hear from doctors, teachers, mentors, life heroes, as well as those in the fields of acting, movies, music, and more. Who knows? You might be the next one Maddie Rose talks to on the air. Listen for the fame game every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Kids Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me next is four-time, number one New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Michael Roizen. His new book, You, Staying Young, The Owner's Manual for Looking Good and Feeling Great, is what we're going to be talking about today. He is uh, Dr. Roizen. Goizen is the Chief Wellness Officer and Chair of the Wellness Institute of the Cleveland Clinic and Chief Medical Consultant to the Dr. Oz Show. Welcome to my show. Uh, Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Goizen. It's great to be on. Thank you very much for inviting us. Okay, so we're going to be talking about staying young, right? Um, and as I, before we got on the show, I was telling you, I mean, I'm one of those people who would like to stay young. It seems to me I'm, it's sort of in a losing battle, so that's what, obviously, what I, uh, want to talk to you about, the owner's manual for looking good and feeling great. What do we do? How can we, how can we fight getting old? You know, it seems to me that there are always these kind of like, if, you know, if you do certain things, you won't age, but is that really true? I mean, we can't, are, are you talking about just aging gracefully and aging well? Um, it's partially both. We, um, aging, getting, um, if you will, old is inevitable, but the rate at which you do it is not. That is, um, if you can slow the aging process by 20 to 30 years, which is really possible, then as you get older, you have many fewer what we call cellular defects, defects in each cell or in your body, in each organ, and thus you age with much less disability and with much less disease. Let me give you the specific example. We develop defects in our cells at the rate of three times greater than we had 10 years earlier. So if you can slow aging by 20 years, you have nine times fewer defects than you would if you were aging at the rate of your chronologic age. So we like to, um, and in fact, you, it's not very hard to get 20 years younger than your chronologic age. And so that's why we actually have written this, because there are a series of myths. Everyone thinks it's in their genes. No, they get to control which of their genes are on or not. And people think preventing damage is the answer. Well, that's one of the answers, but it's not the real answer. The real answer is keeping your repair mechanisms well, because whether it is wear and tear or accidents or just bad luck of someone hitting you in a crosswalk or something, um, we have injury. And so the key is to keep your repair mechanism normal. 
Okay, so how do we do? How do we do that? I mean, just you know, layperson. Uh, okay, we want to keep you say our repair mechanisms uh, normal. <clears throat> what do we do? Just in practical well, terms, five, how do we do that? Because I mean, there are, yeah. five, there are five big things. But as you know from the book, we go into there are actually are 159 choices you can make that have four studies showing that they slow your rate of aging or they accelerate your rate of aging. So there are 159 choices you make that we know in at least four studies in humans change your rate of aging. And let me give you one because you were just talking about stress um, and the... One of the keys isn't whether you have stressful events or not. They happen many times irrespective of you doing something. But it is you get to control whether those events that would be stressful are stressful to you. That is, you get to manage your stress. So when someone cuts me off, I know that I can do deep breathing and not be affected by it and do meditation routinely so that many of life's stresses don't bother me any place near enough. You know you can live a fair bit away from a freeway so that you don't get some of the pollution or avoid where smokers are so you don't get secondhand smoke. Um, so, And you know food choices. You know you can, um, for example, um, choose organic for the 15, if you will, fruits and vegetables that are called, quote, the dirty dozen, even though there are 15 of them now that have a lot of pesticides on them. Those are the only ones to do organic purchasing. And you know you can, everything else in fruits and vegetables, you can enjoy without worrying about whether it is pesticide laden or not, as long as you wash it a couple times. So the, the key point is there are many choices we make that change our rate of aging. Now, one of the keys I, we, you and I just talked about was keeping your repair system. Well, your telomeres and your stem cells are key for your repair system. That is, if, God forbid, you have a heart attack, you will have, within two or three weeks, normal heart function. Even though your arteries are still damaged, your actual muscle will return to function, not because those old cells have regenerated. No, those you kill and recycle, what rushes in is your stem cells, as long as you still got them, the pluripotent ones, and they repair and take over that function. Well, key to this process is, in fact, um, and we only learned this really in the last five years when heart transplants in men were done with female hearts and it was found that the repair of, of damage to this was done with a person's native stem cells and you could tell that by the different chromosomes they had. And so, so are you saying, Dr. Royzen, that our body just regardless of what we do, let's say even the choices that we make, is this push to health automatically, the kind of like to survive and to evolve. It, it, even when we've had a heart attack, uh, your body wants to repair itself. Uh, exactly. Yes. And the key is to keep your stem cells young, that is to keep them reproducing. 
And the way they reproduce is they have telomeres at the ends of them. They're like aglets or those plastic things on your shoelaces. You need those plastic things for your shoelaces to work well. Well, you need the telomeres for your stem cells to reproduce. They would tangle each other up and and allow you to divide and reproduce your stem cells. So you've got to keep those long. But they get short as we got older. They get shortened by lack of physical activity. They get shortened by tobacco smoke. They get shortened by our responses to stress. Conversely, what we've learned in the last three years, and in fact, Elizabeth Blackwell got a Nobel Prize for this last year, is they, in fact, get longer when you manage stress. They get longer when you avoid tobacco smoke. They get longer when you do the appropriate exercises and the appropriate amounts of them. They get longer when you make healthier food choices and correct portion sizes. Okay, we have this information now, as you say, and some of it's just been in the past, let's say, recent five years. But we have the information. You're saying we can reverse the, or we can slow down the aging process. But how, what's the, like, how do we change our attitude? Because I look around, and I'm sure you do. I mean, I travel around the world. I go, I mean, you know, I'm in train stations and bus stations and airports. It seems to me that people look worse, even younger people, than they did 20 years ago. I mean, we're, over, we're making poor choices. Even though we have the information, we're not making good choices. We're fatter. We're unhealthy. Diet, we, you know, diet, we have, I guess, more, you know, diabetes is up, all of the things that are related to obesity. So how do we get people having the information like that you've just been talking about to act on it? Well, in fact, what you said is the key. So you want to stay young. And... Many people would like to avoid disability when they get older. There are five components of actual what we call um, changing the health of a population and changing it as a, of an individual. So one, uh, you've got to believe that you can do it. That's the aha moment. Second is, and part of that, number one, is it's got to be part of your culture to want to do it, and to expect that you can do it. So we have many people with type 2 diabetes that we see have no understanding that especially early in the disease, they can reverse it. So yes, 70% of Americans have the genes for type 2 diabetes, but no place near 70% have type 2 diabetes. Why? Because they haven't turned on those genes. Well, just as you can turn them on, you can turn them off, and you've got to have the expectation that you can do it and see someone who has done it. That's that aha moment. The second thing is to um, be motivated enough to get above your reptilian brain to your thought processing brain. And we do that with corporations with financial incentives. So let me give you the example. If we gave you a $2,000 rebate on your insurance costs, if you do, if you get normal blood pressure with or without medicines, if you get normal LDL cholesterol with or without medicines, etc., you would be more motivated because of that $2,000 saving to do it. That's called extrinsic motivation. It's not internal to your body. Someone's doing it by offering you the $2,000 extra. Well, so one of the major things we do 
in trying to help people understand is not only give them aha moments, but then give them large incentives. A third process is to make it fun and socialize it so it's a cultural norm. I'm going to get out and walk every day. I'm going to have fun walking with my buddy. So the third thing is that socialization. The fourth thing is, in fact, having programs that are readily available, like that diabetes type 2 reversal program that we have or heart disease reversal program that we have that allows people to pull plaque out of their arteries so they normalize their arteries or allows them to turn off their type 2 diabetes genes so they don't have high hemoglobin A1C, they don't have high blood sugar, and they don't get the complications of diabetes. So the, the fourth one is to have programs that help people reverse it And the fifth one is to have that large motivation, that large incentive that helps people do that. So it is really those, it it really requires five steps. And unfortunately, that large incentive is a necessary step for extrinsic motivation. and, And that's part of what we have to do. I agree with you. I think that's a great idea. Uh, Okay, how does cancer fit into all this? Because, I mean, this is just from, obviously, a layman's perspective and antidotal. I mean, in terms of friends, family, it seems to me all of a sudden everybody I know reaches a certain age, 40, and suddenly they're diagnosed with cancer, all different kinds of cancers. So how does that fit into all of this? Are we sicker? Are we getting more cancer? Because we aren't following any of those steps that you just described, or very little. Um, can we talk about well, that? Well, there's both good and bad news here. Okay. One is um, we're detecting more cancers, and that's good news because we can treat them early and cure them or at least um, keep them at bay. The second part of that is many more people are surviving with cancer because of that. Um, and so you know of many more people who have it. The, the negative is the one you brought up, which is that we are developing more cancer because we are not watching our portion sizes and we're getting obese. We're developing more cancer because we're taking in more things that impede our native immune system's ability to fight cancer. But in fact, um, the, the, the really good news is we're surviving it. And if you've got programs like we have and like many other medical centers have that teach people who have survived how to, in fact, get healthy, do what we're talking about, keep, get younger in their body so that their stem cells stay young and they're able to, in fact, have better immune responses. So we normally have an immune response that keeps infections at bay. That was why it was developed. But in fact, it also keeps cancers. I mean, in other words, it was when we, in the olden days, the only reason to have the immune response was so you could make it to 30 and propagate before your offspring died of an infectious disease. Well, we now have don't have that. We have cancer as the major thing that our immune system protects us against. Yes, it does protect us against infectious disease, but we've done a really good job with that. But as you get older, your immune system has to protect you against rogue cells, which would turn into cancer cells if the immune system didn't kill them. And one of the things that allows those rogue cells to propagate is higher blood sugar. 
is more toxins in the environment. It's obesity that knocks out your own immune system. So it is all of those things, those major things that slow aging, also are major things that make your immune system better. So if you slow aging, you improve your immune system, and you're less likely to have a cancer that propagates and is found. Yeah, and as you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, we look to role models, leaders, doctors may be one of them. And I'm thinking, you know, and and I'm healthy, but, you know, just some of doctors that I go to on a yearly checkup, they themselves are overweight. You know, they don't set a good example for their patients. I'm always looking around the office and I see the people that they hire, the women, but it tends to be women, sitting behind the desk are like three or 400 pounds. Um, or looking even to our political leaders um, who are in their 60s, really don't, both sides of the aisle, don't look like they're in very good shape. And, uh, so, you know, these are people you would expect to perhaps, you know, follow these guidelines that you're talking about, but they don't. Well, some do, and many do, and many more are. And let me go into that for a second. So at the Cleveland Clinic, we have 43,000 employees, and we realize this is a major cost to us by our employees being unhealthy and not being as productive in caring for our own patients and in helping others. So um, we stopped, um, we started a campaign to uh, decrease tobacco usage. We started a campaign to get our employees more physically active, to have them eat healthier, and to help them manage the stresses that are inevitable. Those have resulted in our smoking rates have gone from 15.4 to 5.2% over the last six years. Our BMIs, that's body mass index, or measure of obesity, has gone down by half a percent a year, while the nation's has gone up by 0.4% a year. That's about a two and a half pound difference. That is, our employees are losing two and a half pounds compared to the national average person their same age every year. Um, those things make employees more productive and make, as you say, are, are things that improve or help you stay young. But it, right now we're at a corporate level of doing this, meaning it is the self-insured corporations that are doing this both to decrease their costs and to make themselves more cost competitive. We've got to make this a nationwide challenge because if we don't, the costs of medical care are so great as they're going to force us to rationing. We're already beginning to see that. You know, if you have hepatitis C, you can't get the drug for curing hepatitis C unless you get a complication of it. Well, that shouldn't be, but that's the only way that the insurance companies have found they can control costs so that the cost of treating hepatitis C doesn't bankrupt the whole system. Well, we will get more and more rationing if we don't keep our own employees and our own people healthier. So we really need to do that. And so I'm... uh, I'm, I'm going, we're going to, the Cleveland Clinic is trying to push on this, not only with our own employees, but with anyone who will have us work with them to try and push it. Yeah, I think that's really critical, as you say. I mean, the Cleveland Clinic, it's one, you know, a top in the hospital and our top hospitals in the country. So I guess what you're saying is you are the role model for, or should be the role model for other institutions, other hospitals. 
Um, I mean, I, I have to say, and, I always and we are doing that, and yeah. we're we're spreading it to corporations such as GE, such as Lafarge, um, such as Crum and Foster that are around the country and even around the world. Um, so we work with a Saudi corporation that is, in fact, got um, oil change units around the world to help their employees understand this. So we believe it's a worldwide mission, but obviously we want to start with our home, have demonstrated. In fact, we've saved the estimate is between 150 and $250 million in health care costs for our own employees, saving about $65 million this year, which we give back to our employees in reduced insurance costs and give to our patients in reduced medical, if you will, costs for their medical care. But it is something we believe that, that has a large return on investment over a great period of time. And don't you think, I think sometimes we kind of separate or we tend to separate the mind-body and it's a really mind-body thing. I mean, if you are overweight and you're sick and you have all of these diseases associated with obesity, it's not just your body, it's your mind. And if we want to be leaders, leaders in our own country and around the world, you have to have a healthy mind as well, and I think that's, uh, that's absolutely whole... true. In fact, one of the programs we have is a program that teaches eight different methods of stress uh, management. And when the people go through that program, one of the things we found is they actually not only learn how to manage stress, but they, and because this isn't a goal of the program, they actually lose weight. And so one of the, the great benefits of are, in fact, when we come and teach people stress management on this online program, it is not only do they um, learn how to manage stress and feel much more engaged and much more vital and bring more energy to work and decrease the burnout by about 50%, but they lose weight, they manage their blood pressure better, and they end up with lower levels of LDL cholesterol, lower levels of um, inflammatory markers in their blood. So it's quite surprising to us by just teaching them something about their mind, how to manage stress, they end up being much healthier in body too. And I have to say, we only have a couple minutes left, but, um, uh, and I, as I told you before we started the show, I mean, I'm watching you on giving a, a lecture on, uh, on my uh, iPad here, and it's, you know, uh, you... You look very. You look like you practice what you preach. I have to say. Um, well, I, I, you know, that's how I actually got into this. Is when I started doing the data on how to motivate people, my patients, on how to control their blood pressure when they weren't taking their blood pressure medicines, and how to control how to stop smoking when they weren't doing it. When I was trying to learn how to motivate them, we came upon that this is um, the. the if you will, real age. That is, you make yourself younger, and that's our metric. It's not your chronologic age that matters as much as your real age. And so realage.com, now 60 million people have used it, and anyone's welcome to go. It's a free site, and it tells you all the things you can do to stay young. But in doing that, I learned how good the data was. I was listed, that was in 1993, I was listed as one of the thousand best docs in America, and yet I didn't know how strong the data was and were and are that you get to control your rate of aging to a large degree. And because of that control, you have enormous abilities. Um, so in doing that, I got, I 
said, this date is amazing. And so I started doing all the things. And yes, my real age is about 22 years younger than my calendar age. Yeah, that's great. Well, we have to say goodbye. This was great and certainly enlightening. I just want to make sure that everybody knows the name of the, the book, You, Staying Young, the Owner's Manual for Looking Good and Feeling Great, Dr. Michael Royzen. So great to have you on the show today. It's great to be on. Thank you very, yep. very much. Thank you. Uh, we have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.